Welcome to this edition of the Mile Degree 7 Podcast. With me today I have Ben Duffus. How are you today, Ben? I'm good, thanks, Andy. How are you? Not too bad at all, thank you. Unfortunately, today we are missing Simon. He's gone to resettle himself in the UK, so we don't have the benefit of his wealth and experience today, but don't stress, he will be back for the next podcast once he gets himself settled in. So, although Simon fans out there, don't worry, he will be back. He's just missing an action for this one. Ben, so it's been not the best kind of last month and a half for either of us um, lately. We've both had COVID. So I thought before we get sucked into talking about strength training, which is the topic of this podcast, we just have a bit of a chat about COVID and getting back into running after COVID because it's obviously something that uh, a lot of athletes are dealing with at the moment. How did you find it both, you know, getting COVID and the recovery back? It's been, what, six weeks now since you've had it or? Yeah, pretty much bang on six weeks since from when I first started showing symptoms. So, yeah, it's been an interesting journey that I took uh, 10 days completely off um, from when I first showed symptoms uh, for the first probably three, three or so days. That was when I was really knocked around the hardest. Um, I had a lot of fever, aches and pains and just a lot of general fatigue. Fatigue was the main thing for me. Only minor sort of respiratory symptoms, fortunately. So yeah, after three, four days of just absolute sort of bed rest, I was exercise wise, just doing some 20, 30 minute shuffles around the backyard just to get moving and get out in the sun for a little bit, get outside, but nothing, nothing more than that, which yeah, in all, you know, over 15 years of sort of training and that's by far the longest I've ever needed that any sort of cold or that usually two, three days is, yeah. you know, you're back to normal. Whereas this time, yeah, um, 10 days completely off and then really quite a gradual easing back into it that it was at first um, just 20, 30 minute easy jogs um, and just Did really keeping any- it. Do you have any symptoms in terms of elevated heart rate or higher, you know, breathing higher um, respiratory rate than normal or anything like that? Or just you felt okay or? Not too. Yeah, I've seen that in quite a few people. I was purposely really keeping that intensity quite low to not, I really didn't want to take any risk with this because you've seen too many people, they push too hard too soon with the COVID. Yeah, It can just drag on. I mean, for months you, with a cold, if people push too hard too soon, it will dra- it often drags on for weeks, whereas COVID, yeah, months. So I was purposely super cautious. Definitely a little bit of extra fatigue at first, but it's also sort of one of those things where, you, where you're like, well, I haven't done anything for two weeks, you know. I will have expected it to feel a bit tougher than usual. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so certainly for the first two, three weeks, that was sort of the, am I just a bit unfit? Is it COVID? Well, I'll play it safe anyway and just um, really keep that intensity down and just keep gradually easing back in. It was only even in the last week. And so, yeah, now six weeks out. So after about five weeks that I started adding in any sort of intensity and again, then just starting off with like 10 by one minute efforts. Um, yeah, which fortunately okay, didn't... Yeah, they felt okay. I had, I haven't, I really along the journey, I've never really noticed elevated heart rate or breathing or anything. Heart rate may have been a touch higher than usual, but as I said, it sort of was always in that realm where it's like, well, have you just lost a little bit of fitness, or yeah. is it hard to tell? Like you've got, it's multifaceted there. So that that's been okay. And starting to now feel pretty much back to normal and all the easy runs and that. I wouldn't say I'm quite back to fitness-wise where I was pre-COVID just yet, but hopefully only a few weeks away from that. 
Yeah, yeah. Something I've noticed with my athletes as well is that unless you kind of take it easy, then you do risk extending that time period of, of full recovery significantly. Um, and luckily, none of my athletes have had it, but some athletes have, you know, quite long-term COVID symptoms. We're not talking four to six weeks. We're talking three to six months. Yeah. Just noticing high heart rate, um, respiratory rates more than usual and just really not feeling well. Um, my experience is pretty much the same. I had, I had three or four days lying in bed, did nothing for 14 days, and I've just got back into it. This is week, week four, I think. Yeah, week four. Um, yeah, because I think I just sort of just started easing back into it and then you got it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and I had pretty much the same experience as you. I started off with very easy runs and I did a half hour run and my legs are sore the next day. It's like, is that just because I haven't run for two weeks or is that COVID or, or what is it? But it's gradually got less and less. And now I did you know, 8Ks yesterday or today and legs feel fine. So, but I think I will still hold off from doing anything hard for another couple of weeks, just get the volume back up. And I think that's, you know, for all you athletes out there listening to this, if you've had COVID or when you get COVID, because it looks, looks pretty much like we're all going to get it at some stage, it just needs to be patient. You know, mm -hmm. your race might have a, a deadline, but COVID doesn't. COVID doesn't care. So you might be lucky. You might have a very, very minor symptoms and a week later feel absolutely fine. I would still spend a week or two easing back into it before you do any intensity. But for a lot of people, it's taken you know, four to six weeks before we've really felt like doing some intensities, kind of feeling okay to do that, feeling up to doing that. So you just got to be patient. And if that means you're going to do less training for a race coming up, you just have to ask yourself, what's more important, long-term health or this race? And hopefully most of you will answer long-term health because there is a risk of long-term COVID. And it's, from what I read, it's really not much fun. No. And yeah, with all sort of the reports of, you know, and they can particularly pushing too hard too soon. You are risking various issues with heart and stuff like that. And, you know, we're not doctors, so can't really comment too strongly on that. But the literature is pretty definitive that you yeah. better to play it off safe there. Yeah, it's not, it's not a normal cold or a flu. There is risks of long-term heart and lung damage. Rare, but it is there. So ease back into it. All right, let's move on. So today we're going to do a deep dive into strength training which is a poorly, poorly misunderstood area when it comes to ultra runners. It's, it's not all that understood for runners in general, to be fair. I mean, probably only you know, 20 or 30% of runners actually do regular strength training to start with, and we know it's beneficial. So we really want to talk about you know, the different types of strength training, the benefits of strength training, the most effective strength training for ultra runners, the different options you have, and just do a deep dive into all of that. But to kick the ball off, why don't we start with why should we strength train at all? Like what are the key things that strength training can offer us? Now, we know, and as you'll see in this discussion, different types of strength training can offer different benefits. But we'll keep it general to start with. And you want to kick us off, Ben, with you know, the main benefits strength training seems to offer runners. Well, so I think first off, you know, part of the reason you mentioned that a lot of runners don't do it. Ultimately, the best way to get better at running is by running. It's important to remember throughout this discussion that running is the, is the key and then strength training is a supplementary form of training that if you're not getting the running part sort of right, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to win races just by going to the gym. No. So that, that that's important to remember. But 
So then thinking of, okay, what sort of adaptions and that are we trying to induce in training? Well, with strength training, we can induce some different kinds of adaptions to what we can just by running. We're obviously overloading sort of different movement patterns and with different intensities. So potentially, so some potential benefits, okay, are we going to muscularly, are we now able to produce more force for an extended period of time? Um, our tendons and ligaments, are we able to improve um, them both from, again, how much energy return we're getting when we're running and from uh, injury prevention also then being a really big one, are we able to reduce the risk of injuries? There's a lot of um, overuse injuries. It is those tendons and ligaments that are getting hurt. So are we a rather than muscle strains like you would see, say, in sprinters and that? So are we able to reduce the risk of injury there? So really it's looking at, yeah, both we'll be discussing today, both the different sort of performance benefits and injury risk being the real big two. Let, let's kick off with performance benefits and start there, then we'll move into injury risk. So let's go, I'll hand over you again, Ben. Performance benefits, what, what are the main, main ones we find that the research tells us can benefit running? So benefit running is a very nebulous term because <laughs> what broad because yeah it's very broad oh because you can be a hundred meter sprinter obviously we're talking to more like hundred mile um runners and in the same way you're not going to train a hundred meter sprinter running wise in the same way as you would a hundred mile runner we're not going to train a hundred miler runner the same way in the gym either so yeah, this is where we sort of need to look a little bit at, okay, what's actually going to determine performance in trail and ultra marathon races? Well, that's one. Only a little bit of research has been done there. That's quite recent that anything is actually looked at there. And part of the reason we're even having to have this whole discussion, there have been no specific studies that have gone and put trail and ultra marathon runners on a specific different uh, strength training programs for, you know, six to 12 weeks and then evaluated changes specifically in ultra trail marathon performance. So those don't exist. That's why there's debate. Uh, I'll just, I'll just say in it's, it's very difficult to do that. I mean, when you do a study, yes. you like to control as many variables as possible. Now, obviously the longer the race goes, the more variables get entered into that. So to be able to design a study where you control all the variables apart from one group not doing strength training and the other group doing strength training over a significant time period to allow an adaption to happen, say eight to 12 weeks, then go through a race long enough to be relevant to ultra running and then weed out all the other factors and just attribute to changes in performance to strength training is extremely difficult to do. So it's been done for 5K, 10K. Obviously the variables there are far, far less. But as Ben said, it hasn't been well, done. And you can just get people. It's a lot easier to convince people, hey, could you run 5K now and 5K in 12 weeks' time than to say, hey, could you run a 100-miler now and then a 100-miler <laughs> in six months' time? And by the way, we get to control your training, not you. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's, a, that's so, a hard sell. So that's why we're having this conversation because the research the research in terms of benefits for running is, is pretty conclusive for sprinters 100 percent you know you don't know a sprinter who doesn't do strength training for four 5k 10k the research is pretty clear that some kind of strength training is really going to benefit your performance for marathon look if you had to hedge your bets you say yes the research is probably on the side of it helps marathon performance for any longer that just hasn't been the studies out there to say one way or the other 
So what we're going to do today is kind of talk through potential benefits, like how those mechanisms might work, how it might not work, and see if we can kind of tease out something that kind of makes sense for us and apply that to ultra runners. Yeah. So let's go back to the studies that show strength training does work and look at the main ways that they do work. So I'll kick off with one, then Ben, you can chuck in another one after me. Yeah. So one way they do work is by improving a running economy. So what we mean by that is that for the same pace, you use less oxygen to run the same pace. So you're more efficient. Now, that's a great benefit. That means, you know, for the same amount of effort, you can run faster. Cool. The, the benefits look to be in the kind of, you know, one to 4% range. So it's not huge, but it's, it's significant if you're doing a 5K. You might be 20, 30 seconds or even more. But then we've got to look at how does that relate to ultra running? You know, does someone with a better running economy perform better in ultras? Now, again, there's been little studies on this, but the, the, the two theories we have on this is one theory says that ultra runners sacrifice running economy in order to minimize muscle damage. In other words, they might be working harder, but their muscles hurt less. So, you know, the back end of an ultra, we all know our legs hurt quite a lot. So one theory is we're running in a way that might use more oxygen, but might hurt our legs less. In which case, does an improvement in running economy really help us there if we're sacrificing it anyway? Now, the other studies show where they've tested running economy before and after an ultra, and they found that after an ultra, your running economy at low speeds, which obviously is ultra speeds, is actually better. In other words, the muscle damage and the fatigue that you get put under an ultra changes your running economy to make you more efficient. So then you think, well, would strength training that improves your running economy really help us in an ultra if running an ultra improves our running economy anyway? Now, yes, you could argue improving running economy might help my speed work, might help my tempo work, might help my threshold work. And the knock-on effect of that might be to help my ultra running. And that's a good argument. But we can't just say improving running economy improves ultra performance. There's a few steps there that we're making assumptions on. So that's a big one that anybody who talks about strength running will, will throw up when they talk about running economy. Ben, what's, what's another one they often talk about? Well, I think just on running economy also, it's important to note that, um, so, you know, there have been a handful of studies looking at running economy um, and ultramarathon performance. And it's a very mixed bag. Most show very little correlation with, um, yeah, ultramarathon performance. Also really important, as you touched on that, important to note though, when they are measuring running economy in any studies, they're usually testing you when you're fresh. Um, and so there's only, I've only known like one or two studies where they've looked at how at measuring running economy both before and after ultras and that and see whether it correlates with performance. And again, it's just low numbers. And so it's very mixed at the moment. I wouldn't say there is really strong evidence that that is crucial. And also there is very good evidence that a very effective way to improve running economy is to run more. So then there's just the debate of, well, would you be better off instead of doing the strength session, which should you just go for another run? Um, so that that's important to know. And that may also be a confounding factor of why we don't see these strong correlations with running economy that ultra runners typically have relatively high running volume. So they may have already come close to um, eking yeah, out a lot of the benefits that they're going to get. 
speed work helps run the economy. So if they're doing that, you know, are they going to, it's sort of all these funny things with these training modalities that one plus one doesn't equal two, sometimes one plus one equals one. Yeah. Um, yeah, you keep adding all these extra things that help run the economy and they just end up being similar to if you'd just done one or two of them. The other um, factor is that running economy is tested on treadmills normally. Now, yes. the assumption that your running economy improvement measured by a treadmill translate to running on single track technical trails, et cetera, et cetera, is not well supported. And that doesn't make any sense either. You know, the, both of us have coached athletes that have, you know, they might be coming from a road running background, yet when they go onto the trails, they just can't sustain the same level of intensity as someone with a trail running background because their skill level on the trails is not matching their fitness. So to say that improving your running economy as you measure by a treadmill is going to give you better running economy running down Col de Foray in UTMB, we just can't say that. It's just too, too far different. So running economy improvements have to be treated with a grain of salt in terms of the yeah. benefits. And if you're throwing the- something like poles into the mix, well, now your form's completely yeah. changed. So what was, yeah, you're, you're just yeah. testing different sports at that almost at that yeah, point. So, um, yeah, so... Yeah, that, that's quite um, dubious. And also, you know, we, we hike and stuff like that in um, ultras and that. So, yeah, that, that's quite debatable with running economy and that. Um, one, so looking at what has looked at strength, actual strength measures and running performance um, in terms of ultras, the only, so maximal strength, doesn't seem to with ultras doesn't seem to matter too much strength endurance on the other hand very important particularly for mountainous events um and particularly they're usually looking at your quads basically um in these studies that have looked at muscular endurance it's usually looking at the quads the only ones the only thing that where they have shown with maximal strength it's been looking at how much does maximal strength decrease before and after an ultra so again that's more of an endurance metric of those who can sustain so they get tested fresh test them after running a trail and then see okay how much did your performance decline those who decline less that tends to correlate well with performance so again it's more of an endurance metric so strength endurance certainly seems to correlate very well with trail events even even short ones um, as soon as you've got added hills into the mix, that seems to be quite important. Whereas, um, yeah, actual maximal strength, no, not, not as important for these uh, long distances. Strength endurance is probably one of the only metrics that correlates to performance in ultras. Like most of the other metrics don't correlate at all. And we'll, we'll do a deep dive into to that in another podcast. But in terms of strength training, yeah, it seems to be particularly the quads, as you said, the strength endurance of the quads does have a relatively good correlation to performance. So that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. And another one, the one metric that seems to do pretty well in terms of just lab testing with a lot of ultra marathon performance is um, maximal speed in a um, run to exhaustion. So basically often when testing VO2, it's sort of a tack on at the end of the VO2 max test. So you, Hop on your treadmill, they gradually increase the pace, measure as you know, as your oxygen consumption increase, but then they just basically keep going until you got spat off the back. Well, how fast can you be going when you get spat off the back? And that, and, and that should make a bit of intuitive sense because you're testing a lot of things there of you know, velocity at VO2 max, that's testing endurance um, a bit more because you are going all the way to fatigue. 
Yeah. One could argue there's probably a big mental element there as well because you're having to really sort of grind it out at the end. Um, that, that that one metric seems to cross the board with a lot of different, you know, both flat and mountainous ultras, trail races of shorter and longer distances. Not every study in everything, but it's one of the better um, just lab treadmill treadmill based metrics. And probably particularly if you're looking at trail, like hilly trail races, um, when it's been done on an incline, seems to do even better. Um, yeah, that then would you, be one you've of the few lab at, metrics that does well. Then you've got to look at, you know, if you're talking about elites who are spending some time running uphill, you would think that their ability or their speed at VO2 max on an uphill treadmill is going to, you know, quite match quite well. But if you're talking about back of the pack, when you're pretty much hiking every hill, how much that correlates is, is debatable. And mm. all the studies I've read have said, look, 50K correlates quite well to like marathon 50K, virtually no difference. 80K tends to get a bit fuzzier, 80 to 100K and 100 mile, most of it's out the window. So can we, we know that, and the reason we're talking about velocity VO2 max is strength training has been shown to improve velocity VO2 max. So that, it, that is one other benefit that strength training, you know, it's a big thing for runners. If, you know, if you're doing 5K or 10K and you can improve your velocity VO2 max, then fantastic, that's, that's going to help. Uh, but how much that translate into ultras? Yeah, probably, probably at 50K, yes, probably 80 to 100K a little bit, if, particularly if you're more the elite, 100 mile, not at all. What are, the, what are the other major benefits of strength training? Anything, they're the main two, but anything else we've missed? I think um, some studies show an improve in lactic threshold, lactate threshold, not all, but some. And that could, once again, that correlates okay to 50K, less correlation to 80 to 100, no correlation to 100 mile. Maximal jump tests are often improved with strength training. Well, again, that doesn't correlate at all. I think that's the main ones covered. So anything else? Yeah. Well, because via stuff like VO2 max, you're not going to touch really with our strength training. That's no. purely metabolic. And again, that's why things like lactate threshold um, not going to affect too much with strength training because again, it's more a metabolic factor. It's not so much determined by your ability to output force. It's the ability to produce energy and how you're producing that energy. Yeah, the studies on that are... Thin, but I think the main reason, or potentially the main reason why that may be improved, is an improved, you know, if you improve your running economy, you can run faster. So, therefore, will translate to a potential increase in lactate threshold. But yeah, so really, we're looking at maximal force, velocity of VO2 max, and improved running economy. Now, I will say that most of these studies are looking at heavier strength training. So, let's, let's move into the different types of strength training that we can do. Now, there's, there's quite a number. People classify strength training as strength training, but there's kind of like four or five different, quite different ways of doing strength training. So the first one is what most people think of is just heavy weights. We're talking exercises like squats and deadlifts, talking lifting four to eight reps, long rest between sets, really looking at, you know, trying to lift as much weight as we can. So again, that's training close to failure that you're yeah. in those four to eight reps, you maybe at most have one or two reps left in reserve, or you yeah. may be going on complete failure that you have no reps left in reserve. Now that's pretty common amongst sprinters and middle distance athletes. I would even say there that's controversial, particularly with sprinters that there are certainly, you know, sub 10 second runners who wouldn't touch that because um, 
your force velocity curve that essentially they, they think they think that they're moving to that the mindset there is you're moving slowly in that train to yeah. move slowly whereas they have to be able to produce that force super fast so they will yeah. only do um as we're going to so, so i mentioned their sort of force velocity curve so if you're mixing if you're going to lift the maximum weight you can for one repetition you're going to be moving really slowly as you come up you can't jump up with that maximal weight on your bar yeah. whereas now if you're moving a really lightweight you can lift that very fast that's what we're talking about essentially with this force velocity curve that you have like power lifting at one end of the spectrum and sprinting down at the other and that's why you have a lot of sprinters who don't want to go down that far that other end of the spectrum because they think it might be inducing the wrong adaptions for them that's debatable um, we're not yeah. too interested in the sprinters, but it's just pointing out yeah. that that is even there a controversy because then you have, as we move down that spectrum, you might then have something like Olympic lifts now. It's still pretty yeah. heavy, but they're moving it a lot more explosively. So it's still a lot less, you, get, you can't clean and jerk as much as you can back squat. Yeah. Similarly, then you keep moving along that sort of spectrum and you've got things like plyometrics, right? So jumping and uh, hopping and that, where you are now moving quite explosively with traditionally just body weight or you may add small lightweights to it or in some certain circumstances they may even rig up with elastic bands so you're doing less than body weight yeah so just touching on that and kind of expanding a little bit so for those of you who don't know olympic lifting is more clean and jerk um clean and press it's kind of really dynamically lifting a heavy weight so the, the speed of movement is high Whereas traditional heavyweights, you know, you can't squat a super heavy weight quickly. Whereas Olympic lifting is all about moving the bar as quickly as possible. Plyometrics, even within plyometrics, we have a range. Like a lot of strength training studies are based on kind of what I would call quite high intensity plyometrics, i.e. depth jumps where you're jumping off, you know, a meter high landing. And there's, you know, anybody who's kind of done any kind of research or read about strength training, they, they might've come across, you know, you need to be able to, body weight, uh, body, squat your own body weight before we can do depth jumps. And plyometrics kind of gets landed in with that. So oh, you can't do plyometrics until you've done some really heavy weights. Like if you can't squat your body weight, you're just going to injure yourself doing plyometrics. But on the other side of plyometrics, skipping is plyometrics. Just you'd simply get, You'd happily up. give your three-year-old kid a skipping rope, right? Like yeah, exactly. That's plyometrics. It's plyometrics. So there is a whole spectrum of plyometrics. And we're not certainly not going to argue that you should you know you, anybody can just climb up a one and a half meters box and jump off it and not kind of tear their Achilles tendons. But most of us can start jumping up and down on the spot and get some plyometric training. So there is a whole spectrum with plyometric training. Moving along the spectrum, now we talk about you know power lifting, super heavy weights moving fast though. So then we go to heavy weights but moving slower and doing more reps. Then we move to traditionally what most people think of strength training is 12 to 15 reps, two or three sets. The weights are a little bit lighter, probably pushing towards failure, but maybe not to complete failure. And to what most people who've had gym experience would think of as strength training. Then we go out even more and move into the endurance side of things where you might be doing 20 to 30 reps, a couple of sets. And then we can also look at dynamic stuff where you're doing things like jump lunges. And it's kind of, kind of like, combining kind of low weight strength training with plyometrics doing jump lunges and box jumps where you jump onto a box and step back down again so there is a bit of a crossover there so we've got a whole range from really heavy to quite light and everything in between is strength training now that's 
that's a massive spectrum of exercise and that one end is very, very different to the other end. Our job today is to really talk about where we think ultra runners should fit into and the benefits of different types of strength training and when you should choose one over another and what's gonna help you the best. So why don't we start with, is there a case for just doing heavy weights? Like if you talk to most pure strength coaches, they will come from a heavy weight background, whether it's you know, Olympic lifts or you know, heavy weight squats, most pure strength coaches will start you off there because that's what we're educated to believe is best for runners. Now I've trained like that. I've done a level one strength and conditioning course. I've trained Olympic um, pole vaulters. So I, I do have a background in that side of things. But when it comes to marathon and particularly ultra runners, you know, I would argue that there are better ways to train than Olympic lifting or super heavy squats. I guess just, Andy, just jumping in there, one quick question. So you've trained Olympic lifts in that quite a few, you know, quite a bit. Take your average ultra marathon runner. How long do you think it's going to take to train them up before they can comfortably do Olympic lifts, you know, at maximal intensity? How, you know, you're seeing them two sorry. times a week. How, how, how many, like, can they day one do maximal lifts or do they have them? How long do you reckon it's going to take on average? So to take somebody who hasn't done really much strength training before at all, you're probably looking six to 12 months from going, okay, this is a squat. Let's get you squatting properly. Let's load you up with a squat. Let's teach you a deadlift. Let's get you strong and gradually build up the technique required so you can do those kind of lifts safely. Now, most people would need some kind of trainer to teach them how to do that because now when you're lifting heavy, you've got to make sure your form is good. Otherwise, you, there's a huge risk of injury. Now, most of us don't have the time, the inclination, um, or the whereabouts to bother doing that. And I would argue there's no real reason to do that anyway. Like if, if you're listening to this and you currently do Olympic lifts or heavy strength training and you find it works for you, that's fine. Like if, if that helps you, great, you keep doing that. Maybe implement some of the other stuff we're going to talk about a bit later on, but that's great. For those of you who haven't done strength training and kind of wondering where we should go, if you've read that Olympic lifts or heavy strength training is what you need to be doing, just ignore that. There are plenty of very effective strength training routines for ultra runners and trail runners that do not involve going to a gym twice a week, seeing a trainer, you know, building up over a six to 12 month period. It's just the research just doesn't support that that time of strength training is really going to impact or have a noticeable effect on ultra running. So yes, that's... And also most of people, ultra runners we're talking to, you know, they've got their, their race is the goal, not, not learning to do Olympic lifts and that. So it's, you know, spending a year towards learning just how to do the lift before you even start trying to reap the benefits of it. That's a pretty big side quest. Big commitment. Yeah. And I think there's, as we'll talk about, there's, there's much better ways and easier ways I mean, the, the work that Ben and I do and most of our athletes do is almost done mostly at home with just stuff you can find around your house. Every now and then there's this cause for adding more weight, which we'll come to. But for those of you who are a bit worried, we're going to talk about you know, how to do an Olympic lift or how to squat heavy. Rest assured, that's discussion's done. We've done that. We're now going to move on to what you can actually do and pretty much do it all at home. One thing I wanted to talk about before we get into the types of exercises is what kind of muscles should we be strength training? Now, 
I did a poll on the Mile 27 Athlete Facebook page the other day. I just asked, you know, I listed a bunch of muscles and said, which one do you think is the most important for running? Now, I didn't context it and say in terms of ultra running, but it's on the Mile 27 page. So our athletes are all ultra runners or at least marathon runners. So we can, we can forget about sprinting. So this answer doesn't apply to sprinting or 5K. It applies to ultra running particularly. And the muscles I put down were glutes, quads, hamstrings, calves, core, and a few other people added uh, some other muscles like posterior tibialis and a, a, foot, a few other foot muscles and stuff. Now, interestingly, the number one muscle people said was the most important to train was the glutes. The second one was the core. And the one which got no love whatsoever was the hamstrings. Not one single person thought the hamstrings were the most important muscle for runners, which, which I found quite interesting. It just really reflects the information that's circulated around social media and blogs and stuff in terms of, you know, the glutes are king, got to have strong glutes. And no one ever talked about hamstrings. Now, now Ben, you were relating a story earlier before we came on, on live about hamstrings. Yeah, no, well, because I when I did my um, master's in sports coaching, I was the only ultra marathon coach. It was majority team sport athletes. And you post the same question to, you know, footballers and it's hamstring, hamstring, hamstring. If you're not doing, you know, Nordics, then, um, you know, you, you know, you, you're outdated. Everyone's doing hamstring, a lot of hamstring work because there are so many hamstring tears um, in those sports. Uh, so that was interesting. But also... So as we'll probably, as we'll, we'll sort of sort of lead on to, it is a bit of an unfair question in that the answer is all of the above. They're all important. I, I did have go, that option. Oh, you I did, did have, have it? Option. Okay. Because yeah. if you go, not, I mean, yeah. the, the naive thing is if you go and rupture any of those muscles, are you going to be able to run well? Probably no. not. So the answer is all of the above. But if I had to pick one, like that wasn't the option, I probably would have said pass. But yeah. if you look at the studies at paces relevant to ultra marathons, what muscles are most active, what are contributing most to vertical support, to changes in pace, that the answer would be calves. That I would have, yeah, if I had to sort of gun to my head, pick one and kind of just go, oh, it depends, I would have picked calves. Yeah, and it's, it's no coincidence that, you know, if I have to recommend one exercise to anybody, particularly men over the age of 35, it's calf raises because it, it is the weak link for and Ben's doing some as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> it is the weak link for men particularly, but um as we get older, I mean one of the a lot of the studies show as we get older, the thing we lose is the elasticity in our tendons and calf training helps develop that elasticity. We lose the ability. Now you can just watch if you watch a really good 25-year-old athlete versus a 65-year-old athlete. And the thing that you know you don't need much knowledge to, to spot the difference is that bounce they have on their stride when they're young that they lose. Now, as we get older, we tend to shuffle more because we lose that elasticity, which comes from either continual use, like you keep doing speed work all the way through your whole life, or you do strength training. So calves is a good answer. Obviously, the, the rule answer is all of the above. But I just found it interesting that hamstring has got no love and we're still fighting a war of misinformation in terms of glutes being the most second by the core. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about you know, the idea that the body works as one. We can't really tease one thing out and focus on that and hope the rest of the body will just magically work better because we don't work like that. And the way I kind of think about the body is I, I think about the muscles as being a collection of rubber bands. So each muscle, if you think about it as a rubber band, now we know that 
if you've got a skinny long rubber band, you have to stretch that more before you get any tension, before you can let it go and have it spring forward. If you've got a short fat rubber band, you don't have to put much tension on it at all before it feels tight and then you spring forward out of that. So some muscles are more like rubber bands, some muscles are the long skinny rubber bands, other muscles are more like short, tight, fat rubber bands. So the core is a good example. Now, a lot of the work you see in terms of strengthening your core is planks. Now, the whole focus of a plank is to stabilize your spine, to reduce any movement of the pelvis in relation to the spine, get it rock solid so it's this strong foundation from which your muscles can work from, which sounds great in theory, but our bodies don't work like that. Your pelvis moves constantly when we run. So the idea we have to keep our pelvis and spine locked solid to operate efficiently is a myth because every time we hit the ground, our pelvis tilts forward, it drops down to the side where the leg's in the air and it rotates as well. So you get a bit of tilt, a bit of sideways movement and a bit of rotation. Now, if you're training the core to not move at all, how does that make any sense when the core does actually move? Or when the pelvis does actually move. Now, the core muscles should work like short, fat rubber bands. There shouldn't be a lot of movement. It's only a few degrees in each direction that we get that movement. But if you've got a joint that moves two degrees and it's only moving one degree, it's lost 50% of its movement. Now, if you're stretching a rubber band back and you can pull it back two centimeters and let it go and you see it spring off into the distance, but you only pull it back one centimeter and let it go, it obviously doesn't spring anywhere near as far. So the translation of force is much, much less. So we've got to think about how these muscles work when we run, if we want to think about how we can effectively train them. Now, glutes, as Ben said earlier, offline we're talking about this, and you know, sprinters use glutes massively. And if you look at a sprinter compared to a marathon runner and compare their physique, you know, the first thing that stands out is sprinters have got big butts. Marathon runners, not at all. Marathon runners, hamstrings and quads. Now you might say, well, didn't you just talk about calves? You know, well, Ben said calves are most important. Why, why are calves skinny? Ben, do you want to talk us through what that might be? Uh, elasticity at the end of the day, because we've got these big Achilles tendons that, so that, that's where a lot of the force is actually sort of coming from, is from simply elastic recoil, that your calf is working primarily, uh, at least on flat running, primarily close to isometrically. So, so it's just not, it's not like, okay, so isometric means it doesn't actually change in length at all. So the muscle doesn't change in length, but you, you know, as you, your calf will go through a different change in length, but the muscle is saying pretty much the same. Most of that change in length is actually coming from the tendon. Um, you now have concentric means that, so if we imagine that calf raise, that's you going up as it's getting, as it's contracting, and then eccentric is then that lowering as it's getting longer. And so you might hear us refer to that a few, those um, words a few times. Uh, yeah, and so for a lot of running, as Andy was sort of getting to there with his elastic band sort of analogy, that a lot of muscles in um, running are working either isometrically or quasi-isometrically. So when I say quasi, I just mean almost isometrically. They, they don't change too much, much in length. A lot of that change in length is actually coming from the tendons at either end of the muscle. Um, and so, yeah, so the calves then can, so that's why, you know, you go see a marathon and they all have 
well, a lot of them have quite skinny calves, but they have these huge long Achilles tendons. And so that's where they're actually generating a lot of the force. So a lot of, a lot of strength training we've got to think about is how we can maximize that elastic recoil and make you a, a more efficient runner. Combined with how we can train the muscles to tolerate the loads we experience in an ultra. Now, Ben kind of explained their eccentric contractions of when the muscles lengthening, but working at the same time. Now, most people will understand like when you run downhill, your quads are lengthening, but they're also working and eccentric contractions are the ones that cause the most pain. Now, what people don't really understand is that flat running, like every kind of running, there's eccentric contractions. Like the reason you're so sore after a road marathon is eccentric contractions. It causes smash because I've just had you know, 42 kilometers of fast running eccentrically loading. So we need to think about how we can train our muscles eccentrically how we can train them isometrically so they can transfer force to the tendons and develop more elasticity. Those are two factors. Now, the, the other factor, which is not really talked about very much at all, is this idea of being multiplanar. Now, multiplanar just means moving in different directions. We kind of think of, you know, when we run, we move forward. We don't move sideways and we don't twist around. But in reality, every joint in our body moves through all three planes. It has a sideways movement, as a forward and back movement, as a rotational movement. An easy way to think about that is if you have a drone that's following a race, uh, following a runner overhead, and you look down at a runner, you will see their torso work from side to side. That's because it's offsetting the rotation of the lower body. So with every step, your hips are rotating. You're also getting sideways movement of the hips, the feet, the knees, everything. Like it's happening at all three planes to varying degrees, like different joints go through different planes of movement, different ranges of planes of movement. Now, when you're in the gym, if you're only doing squats where your knee goes forward over your second toe, but doesn't go too far forward, and your bum always goes back, and you're all in line, all in sync, because that's what you've been told to do because you've got a heavy weight in your back, that's all good. But on a trail, your knee does go forward of your toe. Your knee does go inwards. Your knee goes outwards. Your foot rolls in. Your foot rolls out. Your hips turn. You land with your foot slightly turned in. You land with your foot slightly turned out. Some strides are long. Some strides are short. We get a lot of different movement running down trails. Now, a good way to understand that is if you run down a technical trail when your legs are fresh, you go bounce, bounce, bounce. Cool. This is so much fun. And you just kind of hop, you know, hop from one rock to another and you're having a great time. If you come back to that trail three hours later and try and do the same thing, all of a sudden it gets a lot harder. You, you, your muscles are fatigued and they don't want to stretch out. They don't want to land slightly tilted this way or slightly tilted that way because your muscles are tired. Now, theoretically, if you had a way that you could train your muscles to be stronger in all those different positions, so you delayed that fatigue so three hours later coming down the same trail you could still bounce down that trail you think well that'd be a good thing unfortunately a lot of the strength work you see prescribed doesn't take into account any of that multiplanar movement so a big thing for all the, the athletes that depend and i coach in strength training is looking at how can we get the knee the glutes the muscles around the feet the core working in a number of different ways so no matter what gets thrown at us when we run up and down trails, the brain could go, we've done that in the gym. We've jumped forward and landed with our foot slightly turned in and we've twisted around and kept running. 
we've done that movement in the gym with a heavier load because we've jumped off the step and done it. So doing it on the trail, it's like, well, cool, we've done that. So I think that's, that's a part that's kind of really missing from traditional strength training programs. So Ben, I want to talk about the traditional kind of strength training that people might typically do, but have maybe been put off it because they've read it's not worthwhile doing. So I'm talking about doing 15, 25 reps of squats or lunges, two or three sets, more working on that strength endurance. Now, if you listen to strength training coaches, I'll often say that's too close to running. Like you want to make your training in the gym different to running. Otherwise you're just doing the same thing. And what's the point? You may as well run. So I want to talk about when that might be a good thing to do and when it's not a good thing to do. So in first off, so if we look at sort of what a lot of traditional strength training is for, it's essentially for sprinting because most team sports are really interested in explosive movements. And even if you take a hundred meter sprinter, right, they're taking 45 steps. Well, so five reps, that's, you know, over 10%. Well, we're talking about uh, running a hundred K, you know, we're talking you know, over a hundred thousand, we're talking hundred thousand steps. So even if you're doing 20 reps, you're actually relatively doing a lower percentage of it. So you're still that you know a lot further away from what you're actually going to be doing so i would still argue in that sense 20 30 reps can you know comparing to what you're actually training for is quite low rep um yeah. not doing squats for 24 hours but yeah, and the be... argument the argument against that is that you're not using your slow switch fibers and your slow switch fibers are what you work when you're running so if you're in the gym you should use your fast switch fibers now Fast switch fibers might be good if you want to develop your finishing kick in a 5K or a 10K race. But in terms of an ultra, fast switch fibers have very little use. They're quick to fatigue um, and need long recovery. So they have very little use in an ultra. So the idea that if you're going into a gym, you want to work different muscle fibers to what you're doing when you're training doesn't really make a lot of sense because there's very little, if any, carryover from developing your fast switch fibers in the gym into finishing a 24-hour ultra marathon. So I think the critics of 15 to 25 rep range, two or three sets, might be valid if you're talking 10K or less, less valid half marathon to a marathon, and not valid at all in terms of an ultra marathon. The other thing... And, um, and also I just want to want to say so when we talk about fast switch slow switch you can also all these things this exist these muscle fibers do exist on a bit of a spectrum. spectrum you can also think of what we sort of call what's called the size principle basically where you have your low so when we recruit muscle fibers you get signals from the um basically from the spinal cord recruiting different bundles of muscle fibers you have what we can call your low threshold mode um, units which are essentially the first ones to get recruited and these do tend to primarily be more slow twitch fibers because these are the ones that are constantly getting recruited and then you eventually as you sort of increase the intensity up to say up to a maximal lift or maximal velocity you will recruit more and more and more muscle fibers so you get to your um high um, high threshold motor units which are the ones that are rarely recruited so your argument for really high intensity heavy lifting in that is that you're going to be able to recruit and train those high thresholds and whereas with lower intensities you're focusing on those low thresholds but even in doing a low weight um so even if you do low intensity muscle contractions to to fatigue until failure the size principle still remains that you are going to be primarily recruiting the low threshold units so if you're not concerned with um ever doing a maximal 
sprint that you are just looking to do low intensity contractions like you are doing at the pace of running in an ultra it is the low threshold motor units that are always going to be most crucial it's not that they fatigue and you now need to have really trained these high thresholds because those high threshold ones aren't what are going to save the day it's the low threshold ones that are doing all the work all day yeah so it just makes no sense to, to have a strategy which trains the high twitch the, the fast twitch high threshold motor units no sense at all so well, actually even the counter argument is those ones are often more susceptible to hypertrophy so they're more likely to grow in size yeah. and if they're not helping and they're adding extra weight they're they're actually just dead weight yeah especially going uphill i mean going downhill you can maybe argue that they might get some recruitment if you're going really fast downhill really fast and if you know you have an odd step but it can might chuck in where you do have that one step where you suddenly need that much higher intensity that it could perhaps one could argue there it offers a bit of injury protection that you do have that higher strength to access certainly but yes that is a rare case yeah but uphill you just carry more weight and the other thing with with that kind of scenario you posted ben in terms of you know an extra step or an extra long stride or little jump you can train that you can train your low threshold slow twitch fibers to react to that you don't you don't need to do that at a heavy weight you can do that just by doing some dynamic stuff without much weight at all. So all the stuff, all the benefits you can get, you can get doing low, um, slow twitch fiber recruitment rather than fast twitch and it's more relevant. So just there's just a pretty weak argument. Before we leave heavy strength training though, let's just talk about why we might do it. What, what are some of the situations where, you know what, going heavier is probably a good idea. Uh, there are definitely rehab purposes where it can be quite useful. So particularly when we're looking at tendon rehab or even prehab, so as we we're talking before about how tendons, when we're running in that, how they stretch a lot. If you, so, so we often want to strengthen our tendons. Now, if you have a healthy tendon, you can stimulate its growth in a lot of different ways. You can just go do your plyometric, go hopping on the spot. That's great for tendon um, development. That also can um, be really good for in developing tendon stiffness. But if you have an injured tendon, particularly so if you go put a hole in that tendon, which essentially, so you think when we damage it, we put micro tears in it. So we are essentially putting little holes in it. Sort of research shows that if you go doing those really fast um, plyometrics, so those fast contractions, that the force essentially goes around the outside of the hole, gets transferred around the outside of the hole. And you, whilst you will stimulate tendon growth outside the hole, you don't actually stimulate inside the hole, the part that you're really interested here in this case in strengthening in that case, what you need to do is have it under tension for long periods of time. Tendons are visoelastic. So essentially what that means is that how they sort of stretch and that depends on the rate to which you load it. So think of that putty, right? Which if you scoot, you know, drag it out, pull it slowly out with your hands, it stretches, but if you put in a ball and throw it on the ground, it bounces. Tendons are a bit like that. Um, and so you, that's why the rate of loading will change how you stimulate those tendons. And in that case, um, when there is a hole in the tendon, you need to load it slowly so that it can sort of um, creep and slowly stretch out. And then that actually stimulates um, the collagen that you're interested around that hole. And so then ultimately you want to fix the hole and get a nice, strong, healthy tendon again. So that is really the case for then heavy, slow lifting. And that's um, isometric. We want to then with a big, heavy load in order to actually gradually increase the load because you need to keep adding uh, load to keep stimulating it to get stronger. 
So that's really the big argument for tendons. Also, it does, so I mentioned before with the hopping, how that will make your tendon stiffer. A stiffer tendon, good for performance because a stiffer tendon, so think about a stiff spring, you can, it will give more energy back when you stretch it. The slower loading will actually make it a bit more stretchy, which that can lower injury risk because as you can imagine, a really tight spring, you pull it too fast, it might be more likely to break. A slightly more stretchy spring, you got a bit more room, you got a bit more leeway before you're going to snap it. So that can also sometimes be beneficial that there you're looking to fix those holes and also then perhaps actually in that case, you make it, um, yeah, you're not so much focused about trying to get it super stiff in that case. So the three main areas that that would benefit from is Achilles tendons, the hamstring tendons and the patella tendon. They're the three common uh, injury points or weak points that we tend to see happen. So, you know, calf raises, anything to work the hamstring and quite, and squats and stuff to work, um, put load through the patella tendon. So there is an argument there. If you've got tendon weaknesses, initially body weight might be enough. So body weight, one leg squats, body weight, calf raises and hamstring work might be fine. But as Ben said, if, if you want to continue to get adaptions, you need to load more. Just like if you want to run more, you can't just run 5K and expect that running 5K every day and not doing any more is going to make you fitter. It won't unless you run more. So the same thing with loading tendons, you know, body weight, single legs, um, calf raises or squats might be great to start with. And you can do more reps and you can do slower to, to increase load. But at some point, if you want to continue to stimulate the tendon, then you need to add some form of load. Now, whether that's you know, a 10 kilogram weighted pack on your back, or you've got some dumbbells lying at home, or whether you need to go to a gym to really add some load, depends on the muscle. I mean, calves, calves are quite strong. Like you typically need to add quite a bit of weight once you've got some basic strength um, to increase the load, particularly slayers, which is the bent knee calf yeah. raises. You can tend to be very strong. And that's a, yeah, so in particular, it's one that's really hard to train without gym equipment to train heavy, um, to train well, just because, yeah, you, you, they're quite strong muscles. Um, you can't just put, you know, a 10 kilo weight on if you want it. So yeah, seated calf raises, I've mentioned on this podcast, I think before that quite, quite a fan of them for Achilles rehab. Um, so yes, I think you're sitting and now you've put a weight on your knee and now lifting that up with your calf raises, you have to uh, add a fair bit of weight and that's just hard to do at home without a so bit of equipment. So for all those listeners out here, it's fairly obvious that Ben doesn't have kids because you can just grab your kid and chuck them on your knee to a few calf raises. <laughs> I mean, you still need a pretty big kid. I guess he, that's why you have multiple two of them. kids. You that's can stack them two. up, you put them on each other's shoulders. Yeah, Yeah, you got two. Like I put both of my kids on my knees. I've got, you know, 40 kilos, 45 kilos on my knees. So yeah, that, that works well. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the, the take home from here is that if you've got tendon issues and you're doing some form of exercise for it, great. But if you want to keep those tendon issues at bay, you're going to gradually have to increase the load somehow. So you've got to figure out a way to do that. Um, any other main reasons for doing very heavy strength work? I, I can't think of any other than tendon loading. Looks good on the gram. <laughs> Looks good on the gram. All right. Um, Not going to get so, too many followers posting pictures with the little dumbbells. No, very, very true. So let's move into the types of exercises that might be good. Now, 
obviously we want to make it running specific. Now, the deal with the type of exercise that you do is the more similarities you have from a neuromuscular point of view to running, the greater the transfer of force from one to the other is. Now, let's use this as a big word. So I'll try and explain it simply. If you do a lot of swimming, the fitness you gain swimming is only got a really small carryover to running because the two are quite dissimilar. So most people couldn't relate to that. Most people won't think that by doing lots of swimming, you're going to make you a better runner. It might help with a bit of recovery, whatever, but it's not going to transfer hugely to running. Now, the same thing applies to strength training. If you, for example, if you lie on your stomach on a hamstring curl machine in the gym. So for those who aren't familiar, you lie on your stomach, hook your calves under a bar, and you've got to bend your knees and lift your leg up behind under so your feet touch your bum. Does that work to hamstrings? Yes, no question at all. But now we're going to look at the position of the body doing that. So you've got lying down on your stomach versus standing up. Does that match? No. Let's look at the range. What range of movement are we getting? So when you're lying down, your knee and hip and shoulders are all in line. So, and you bend your foot up. So you're not really getting much of a stretch on the hamstring at all. There's, there's no stretch. Now, when we run, our first point of contact is with our foot out in front of us. So therefore we're getting a bit of a stretch. So the range of movement is far less lying down in the gym compared to running. Then we look at the speed of movement and we find that's dissimilar as well. So all these factors weigh up. And if, if the body position, the speed of movement, the rate of loading, the range of movement, if they're all very different to running, the transfer of force from that exercise that you've done to running is pretty minimal. So another probably the easiest way to understand it is you look at a wall squat. So a lot of people are familiar with a wall squat. You just sit with your back against the wall. You lower yourself down so your knees are slightly bent and you stay there for 60 seconds or two minutes or whatever until the legs burn like hell and shake like hell and you stand up. Now you might think, oh, I could feel my legs working. That must be great for running because that works my quads. Running works my quads. Tick, tick. Happy days. But with a wall squat, you're standing still for 60 seconds, doing no movement whatsoever. In running, you spend 0.25 of a second with your foot on the ground. That's it. Now, how we can expect something that stays still for 60 seconds to translate to something which is on the ground for 0.25 makes zero sense. So we, we've got to think about what exercises can we do that can relate so that, what exercise can we do that tr the transfer of strength is applicable to running? Now, you might say, well, why don't we just run? And that, that's, that's a great argument. Ben talked about that before. It's like running is the best way to improve your running. But assuming you've kind of maxed out your running, you can't really fit another session in, or you think, well, there's probably some more benefits to the game with strength training. We've got to do some work in the gym. Now, we can move a little bit away from running. We don't have to we don't have to replicate running exactly in the gym. We've just got to be close enough that the brain thinks this is pretty similar to running. So when you run, it takes the strength you've gained in the gym and transfers it into running. So one of the key factors for me in, in looking at what exercises are good is, is this close enough to running to get a benefit, a transfer? Now, one important thing to keep in mind is that it sometimes takes a while to develop an exercise to get to that point. So for example, if we take an exercise called a jump lunge with an upper body rotation. So simply put, you put one foot in front of the other in a lunge position. You start with your arms rotated to one side, you jump up in the air, 
you throw your arms to the other side, swap legs and land. Now, from a running specificity point of view, that's got some great things that are similar, very similar to running. You've got the legs going back and forth. You've got the upper body rotating. You've got dynamic, like it ticks a lot of boxes. But for some people, that's quite advanced exercise. And they may need to start further away from what looks like running to build the strength up. So you might start with just a simple split squat, one leg forward, one leg back, going up and down. No dynamic, no twisting, nothing. Just getting strong, going up and down first. And then you might progress to a lunge where you step forward into that split squat position and then come back to starting point again. And then you might progress to a walking lunge where you continue to walk forward in your lunge position. And then you might do a walking lunge with your arms rotating left and right as you go. And finally, you might progress to a jump lunge with rotation. So when we think about our exercises, we've got to think about what can we do in the gym effectively and how far away is that from an effective exercise for running? and build from one to the other. So another example might be plyometric work. We might say, well, a great exercise is jumping up into a box, jumping off that box, landing down on the other side, then immediately hopping forward. Now that ticks a lot of boxes. It's a fantastic exercise to develop calf strength, tendon elasticity in the Achilles, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also quite advanced. So we need to think about, okay, well, what can I do right now? And right now might be, well, I can jump up and down 20 times, just do small little hops like I'm skipping. And then gradually you go from that to jumping up into a box and stepping down, jumping up into a small box and jumping off, increasing the height of the box, increasing how far away from the box you, you start so you get a greater horizontal movement, et cetera. So it's all about figuring out where you can start and how you progress that towards what's most beneficial for running. I think that's the key thing that a lot of strength training programs miss. So Ben, now that we know that we've got some great exercises that are very specific for running, but we may not be at the level that we can do those safely. So what's an example or a range of examples of exercises where most people could start at a gym or home? And there's a typical exercise that we get people to start at that we can gradually build them towards those more run specific exercises. Also, another one I really love for particularly people who are training for, say, mountainous races but live in sort of flatter areas would be step ups and step downs that, you know, if you don't have mountains or stairs, well, essentially just stepping up onto a box, stepping back down, very similar sort of motion. Um, doing really big steps, doing it really rapidly, or as you mentioned, jumping up, jumping down, that might be a bit advanced. That's where you might be starting off with just quite a small box. It might only be, you know, a 30 centimeter box and then building up to a 45 centimeter one, working also then slowly on getting faster with those movements. At first, it might be quite a slow and controlled sort of movement. And over time, you might be able to, particularly on the up, go, go a lot faster. Um, so yeah, and then, talking there about the multi-planar that's where then we can be adding in rotations adding in arm movement changing foot positions are we turning the foot in foot out um and yeah really playing around with all those sort of variations there so your lunges lunges have this great i mean i love lunges as anybody who's been coached by me will know because there's just so many things you can do with them so as ben said with the foot positions is instead of thinking we have to lunge you know with the knees in line with the second toe and everything's in line under the hips and the knee doesn't go forward, etc. We can just go, okay, this set, I want you to step forward into your lunge, but with your foot slightly turned in. The next set with your foot slightly turned out. Or instead of stepping directly forwards, 
I want you to step slightly sideways to one side and then step slightly sideways to the other side. And then you can do that with your foot turned in or turned out. So you've got all these different positions, which when you think about it, when you're running down a trail, you're not landing with your foot directly ahead of your hip when your knee never going forward of your toes. Your foot's landing in all these different positions. So if we can create strength in the gym or in our strength program by doing that, when it comes to running down a trail, you've already had that strength. You've already, your brain knows how to do that movement. It goes, yep, we can land with our foot turned in, no big deal. So I think that's one of the key things is, is to pick something you can do and then think about how you can tweak that. Now, you know, some people might be worried about well, when, I, when I damage my knee, if I don't keep everything aligned and make sure my knee doesn't go forward of my toe and blah, blah, blah. And look, yes, if you've got you know, a 50 kilogram barbell on your back and you're dynamically stepping into a lunge where your foot's turning this way and your hips are going that way, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, unless you've spent a lot of time building up to that, you're probably asking for an injury. But we're not talking about adding a 50 kilogram barbell. We're talking about getting your brain used to lunging and jumping in different patterns and getting used to loading those patterns and controlling those patterns. So it's sort of the edit. There are no inherently bad exercises, but there are the wrong exercises for the wrong person at the wrong time. That it's about building these tissues capacity for these different things that be in the same way as we're talking about when you're running down a trail, you can't always be landing in this perfect position for applying optimal force. So you need to have trained ideally not just that range of motion, but even a slightly greater range of motion. This is part of the argument for this strength training of why we're not just running, that we are purposely going a bit above and beyond so that you have that bit of leeway. Your muscles aren't getting pushed right to their limit because if you've never stressed you know, your knee with your foot turned out slightly and now you land with your foot knee, this is completely new stimulus to it. And that in itself is asking for injury but if you've built up that tissue's capacity by chain by training all of these range of motions you now have far greater physical literacy far greater capacity for these different movements so a good example of that is how many people listening have ever stumbled running on trail throwing their front leg out in front of them ended up with a minor hamstring strain because you've never experienced what it's like to have a large stride forward under a very quick sudden load. I know I've done it stacks of times. But if you've trained that in the gym, you can get away with that. If you've done a lunge where you take a very big lunge forward and you lean your upper body forward at the same time, that's going to really load that hamstring and take it through a greater range of movement. So when you get on the trail and you trip up and you throw your leg forward subconsciously because that's what a reflex we have to stop us from falling flat in the face does, then your brain goes, we've done that before. We've done that range. We've done it under heavier load in the gym. It's all good. Rather than, oh, shit. Oh, my hammy's really sore now. God. So in a way, doing all this multiplanar stuff and going through different ranges of movement and different foot positions is really trying to bulletproof us. So when we get to the trail and no matter where our foot has to go, our brain's going, we've got it covered. We've done this before in the gym, stacks of times under heavier loads. It's all good. And I think that's, one of the missing factors for a lot of strength programs I see is they just don't train that multiplanar kind of load area at all. The second thing that I think that is missing from a lot of strength training programs is that dynamic loading. You know, doing three sets of 25 lunges is great, but you're missing that plyometric dynamic kind of loading, which is so beneficial. And we get scared of that because we read about, you know, depth jumps, box jumps, which are hugely high. We see... You know, on Instagram, you see someone jumping up 
a 1.5 meter thing and then jumping off it again and go, oh my God, if I did that, I'd break my ankles or snap my tendons. But as we mentioned before, it can start with just jumping up and down on the spot. It can start really simply. And then we can build that. Instead of jumping down up and down on the spot, we can jump forward and backwards, sideways. We can land with our toes, foot pointed in, our foot uh, turned out. We can progress to one leg, do one little leg, little hops. We can then hop for distance. We can do five hops in a row, seeing how far we can hop. We could hop slightly left, slightly right, imagining we're kind of crossing over a line. We can hop with our foot turned in, foot turned out. We can apply all these different stimulus. So when it gets to the trail, again, your brain goes, been there, done that, got the strength for it, let's go. And I think that's another big part that's missing in most strength training programs I see. Moving on, I want to talk about when we should do strength training. Like when is the best part of the week to slot that strength training program in? Ben, do you want to kick us off with this? Yeah, I mean, well, it's a bit of a controversial thing because it does depend a little bit on the intensity at which you are training and how much time one has to actually train. Because one common thing put forward is that, you know, make your hard days hard, make your easy days easy. So do you know? So first off, you're, as we said, your running is definitely the most important thing. So for your most important sessions, so any higher intensity work, um, arguably your long run, um, you don't want to be going and carrying too much fatigue from your strength sessions. So obviously don't do your strength session right before your speed session, because now you've just maximized the fatigue that you're going to carry into that speed session. You're going to diminish the quality of it. So the counter argument, okay, well, how about we make that hard day hard? We do the speed session in the morning. We do our strength work in the evening. So we've had a bit of time to recover. We might be slightly compromised from the um, speed session, but this way we have it as far away as possible from the next higher intensity session or any sort of other harder days. That's certainly one thing that, that assumes they're one that people have time to train twice in a day and two, that they still then sort of have the energy to back up for a hard um, strength session after doing that hard session in the morning, which for people who have jobs, for instance, that might be um, not a great assumption that they're going to have that energy. Some will, some people can certainly do that. But if you've got a um, tiring day, two hard sessions in a day might be just too much. They're making the hard day too hard. If that's the case, then you probably then you're looking at putting it on a different day to your um, to your speed work to your higher intensity sort of work, and in that case, then well, it's like do you you we were now constrained by often for most people the work week that as much as there are arguments like you know should we always be working on seven day cycles and it's like well physiologically no no reason but socially. Most people's jobs and that work around seven-day cycles. And some people's shift work, it might be a nine-day cycle. Usually most people's cycles are determined by work or school, yeah. whatever, that it's not really their choice. They're not full-time athletes. They have a life outside of their running. So it's somehow determined by that. And then it's just a matter of, you know, you're trying to cut your losses as much as possible there, that it's, okay, simply where does it fit in? that you're going to compromise your other sessions the least. And that can be a hard thing that it will mean that often, you know, you're doing a strength session the day before a, um, a harder session, which if you're annihilating yourself in the gym, 
that's not going to work. That's where then you've got to really monitor the intensity of those strength sessions such that the next day you might be pulling up, you know, aware that you did a strength session the day before, but you don't want to be super sore. You don't want to be really compromised um, going into those harder sessions. So yeah, it is definitely a bit of a balancing act and often, yeah, we can, you can discuss what's physiologically ideal, um, but usually the reality of life is a bigger factor. Yeah. I know for me, what I found, so I used to do a speed session on a Tuesday night and I found if I did my strength work Monday night, I actually felt pretty switched on. Like I felt like the muscles are really fired up and I felt strong doing Tuesday night. Wednesday morning, uh, not so good. So the extra 12 hours made a difference. And even if I didn't do, if I missed my speed session, for example, for whatever reason, I still found Wednesday morning, my muscles were not up for a hard session. That's me though. So it's, it's about doing a strength work and going, right, when am I most sore from this? Is it 12 hours? Is it 24 hours? Is it 36 hours? As Ben said, ben said try to avoid any harder sessions and ideally a long run as well. So you're not performing those sessions when you're the most sore from your strength work. So for a lot of people who do hard sessions Tuesday and Thursday, Tuesday, Friday, it might mean doing a strength work Wednesday morning. So it's you've got at least 36 hours until Thursday night's hard session to recover. And then doing a second one Friday morning, maybe. So you've got to a Sunday for your long run. So that for a lot of people, that kind of fits in pretty well. But as Ben said, you, you've, your life is... You can't just move stuff around just to get your strength work and you've got working kids and stuff so you just got to do the best you can do and sometimes that means some sessions are a bit compromised but if you can avoid compromising your hard sessions and this is also why you know before we were touching on different types of training and stuff like that that sort of why again we within a lot of cases if we don't need to try to avoid the why we often avoid some of the super hard part you know the heavy the really heavy lifting because it tends to leave people quite sore um that yeah if you've ever done max squats and stuff like that chances are yeah. you're going to be quite sore afterwards and also again with the even if you are a lucky enough that you are able to do you know a hard session in the morning and do your strength in the that evening and keep it as far away as possible from the next um hard sort of day session again you it, it just sort of with injury risks and stuff like that if you're not you know you don't have a trainer watching you during that session stuff like that you don't have um lots of good ways to measure you know your readiness and stuff like that to perform you just have less leeway when you you know if you're, the closer you are working yeah. to maximum the less leeway you leeway have but if you're more fatigued than expected from that speed session and you still then go now load on that same weight that last week you were able to do five reps of or three reps of and today that's actually more than your max you yeah, can be in trouble. trouble so on that kind of topic how hard should we be pushing our strength sessions to max should we should we just lift to failure should we just kind of go to we can't do anymore what's our guidelines there so generally again it, it always depends a bit on what's the type as they what the type of strength training that you're doing and a big thing, as I said, where you're putting in that week is then monitoring, okay, how are you, once you've done that compromise, where can we actually fit in? Monitoring how are you pulling up the next day is often a good, pretty good gauge that if you're as, as hard as you can go without um, compromising those main sessions is a very sort of 
the vague answer, but often what we're sort of aiming for that sweet spot. Uh, usually, again, so with those, when we're talking stuff about like the heavy lifting with tendon rehab and stuff like that, then there are arguments for going pretty close to failure, but that induces a lot of fatigue, a lot of soreness. And so generally I would keep, um, keep a bit further away from that. We're talking about, uh, at, right at the start, sort of talked about sort of force velocity and that. And so then you get into the whole concept of so like velocity-based training and that. So I was talking about how sprinters might actually avoid that really heavy range because they're moving too slowly and that. Well, as you fatigue and approach failure, you slow down. You can't move as quickly. If you're, if you're doing 20 reps to failure, well, your last, that last final rep is basically at a similar velocity if you're just doing one, one, a one rep max that you slow down as you go. And so you are, in that case, as we're talking also then later about specificity, well, you're now getting less and less and less specific to those velocities. So you, we also there think about, okay, making the velocity that we, you are moving at specific. So in that case, you might be keeping actually, you know, several reps in reserve that you could actually still crank out quite a few more, but you would be slowing down. So it's looking at, okay, how do we not just make sure that form isn't breaking down, but that we're only, you know, say, cutting it off and you know you you've slowed down 40 percent or something like that i think that's some really good points there if you if you're doing just a straightforward one leg squat or lunges you know something simple like that without too many dynamic uh, elements yeah if, if your speed starts to slow down and you start to really like almost pause after a rep then you've probably you probably cut it off there because that's probably enough with the more dynamic or multi-planar exercises once you find your form starting to go at all I would cut it off there. So that'll probably be well before you actually fatigue because what happens is because these kind of multi-planar dynamic exercises have a high neuro neurological input because you're evolving lots of muscles at the same time, what you find is you neuro fatigue before a particular muscle fatigues and you just find your coordination starts to go a little bit, that the foot kind of lands in a funnier position or the knee wobbles in or you just find yourself a bit unbalanced. It's just like, okay, my form's starting to suffer, stop now. So I think... If in doubt, you should do less than what you think you should do to play it safe because you still get a fair bit of benefit. Like those last few reps when you are slowing down or when your form's suffering and you keep going aren't really giving you a hell of a lot. So you're better off stopping just before that and getting the benefit the first lot of reps go. Now, it's a different argument if you're talking about pure strength. So for those of you with a big strength training background that are thinking about strength in terms of that, like this is not that argument. We're talking something completely different here. Most well, of the benefits will be got in the first bit. And this is where before I was talking about sort of velocity-based training where, you know, most people don't have access to the necessary equipment to actually implement that properly where you're monitoring bar speeds and things like that. But a big principle and stuff like that, reason why that is so popular in a lot of, you know, if you're in a strength and conditioning gym, you know, you, you play for a team with millions of dollars throwing around so they have all access to all of these things is that they are purposely cutting off okay we don't want to move too slowly because you're not you're now inducing the wrong adaptions and that, that, that yeah cranking out those really slow reps that's not what we're after in this case but in a lot of a lot of what gets thrown around sort of in most commercial gyms most people are interested in like building muscles muscle size and hypertrophy and that where you often do need to be training quite close to failure in order to Induce yeah, hypertrophy. Yeah. So, before we leave this topic, 
I just want to talk about, you know, you, hopefully you've listened to this and you've gone, I'm not doing any strength training. I should do some strength training. I'll go in the gym and I'll do, you know, a few sets of lunges and squats tomorrow and I'll get, get into it. Need to be really careful when you start a strength training program because the amount of work you have to do to make yourself sore is very little. It's, it's far, far less than most people think. Like most people will go into the gym or a home. They just you know they've, they've seen some videos of people doing lunges or whatever. And they go, oh, I'll do that. And they do whatever they think is about right until they can feel it, until they, yeah, I can feel that working. I think that's great. The next day they wake up and they can barely walk. Like if you haven't done anything, the, the amount of stimulus you need to make yourself sore is very little. So what you need to do, unless you prepare to sacrifice a couple of weeks of running to get into strength, is do way less than what you think you should do. So if you're doing you know, a set of lunges and you think you after 10, I could do 20, stop at 10. You're far better off doing a 10-minute strength workout, waking up the next day going, well, I can feel like I've done something, but like it's fine. Because then you've got a, a baseline where you can build from. Whereas what most people do is way overestimate what they can do and wake up the next day with really sore legs and can't run for three days. In a way, it's like a runner who's been off running for six months going, you know what? I did some cycling and some swimming, so I'm still pretty fit. So I'll do 15K tomorrow. Then wondering why they were sore the next day. Well, you should have started with five because 15, even though it felt easy aerobically, it's not. So do I mean, yeah, way less. I think a lot of runners can relate to that, that in the same way in the gym, you know, if you go training to failure in your first session, you know, in several weeks. Well, imagine if you ran to failure, if you ran till you collapse and you haven't run for six weeks, how sore are you going to be the next day? Yeah, very, very sore. So very gradual increase in, in load over a period of kind of two to four weeks um, till you find that sweet spot between where you feel sore the next day, but you can still do an easy run and, and like it doesn't really impact. You might be a little bit slower than usual, but it's not really heavily impacting you. Um, frequency, how often should we strength train? Once a week, five times a week? What's optimal? General consensus um, for running, looking at around two to three per week. Pretty simple answer. And now, of course, if you're doing, say, you have rehab exercises from a physio and stuff like that, that there, there is some things that you might, that are, you know, would be classified as strength training that you might be doing every day. Um, or, you know, even when we're talking about like plyometrics, jumping on the spot for 10 minutes, you know, that might be, you know, part of your rehab and you might be doing that, you know, as a second session or something like that. That's a bit different. When we're talking like a dedicated strength session, you know, at least sort of, you know, 20 minutes of, you know, um, dedicated sort of strength session that you really is not just the everyday stuff. Looking at about, yeah, two to three, fine for most people, it's two. Um, yeah that three might be in special circumstances, particularly if you are rehabbing an injury or when training volume is low and well, relatively low for them for a specific reason. Um, and you might be purposely having a bit more of a strength training focus, then you might be doing three, but most cases it's probably two. The other one, one, yeah, one, you're probably just going to keep, as we we're talking before about how, you know, pulling up a bit sore, one just often find it's just, um, you, you, you just sort of be, it's enough time off between that you just keep pulling up a bit sore. And it's obviously going to be quite a slow rate of progression also with only one stimulus per week. Yeah. One, one plus one is more than two in this case, two sessions a week is just 
far, far better than one. But, yeah, but by the time three, you're doing three, it's starting to get to the diminishing returns, yeah, but definitely yeah. still a benefit. Yeah. The other thing to do if, you know, if you like doing strength training and want to do it three times, is you can mix your program up a little bit so you're not doing the same thing all three sessions. So one session might have a bit more of a dynamic focus, a bit more hopping and jumping and stuff. One session might be a bit more pure strength, what we think of pure strength in terms of one leg squats, lunges, and the other session might be more multiplanar. So you can kind of mix it up a little bit. So there's some crossover for all three, but it does allow you to do three sessions without getting too sore and bored. Um, and also when we're talking about, you know, how how you pull up from those different sessions might then depend on, you know, which ones you want to focus on and go, oh, okay, after that session, I've got really, you know, I have to do that one on Monday evening and then I'm doing a hard set, you know, running session Tuesday morning. Okay, so that session needs to be quite light. I yep. can't be yep. too sore, whereas another one, you might have 48 hours till you're doing anything hard afterwards, so you can go a lot harder. So if you can juggle those, those more difficult exercises, or the, when I say more difficult, the exercise that loads you more, into the optimal times of day because you might only op, optimal time of the week because you might only need 20 minutes which is relatively easy to fit in but if you're trying to fit in 45 minutes to an hour twice a week it, it can get challenging so sometimes splitting up is a better way to go before we wrap up um, today's talk of strength i just wanted to briefly touch on the stretching versus strengthening debate i often hear from athletes and i see on social media you know i strain my calf it's not flexible enough. I need to stretch it more. Or same thing, my hammy. I, I stretched my, my tammy's torn. I need to stretch it more. I need to be more flexible. And so a lot of people think that the key to minimizing injuries is to be more flexible. So they go on a, on a stretching program and they might do you know five, 10 minutes of static stretching every day and think that that's going to help them be less injury prone and allow them to have a greater range of movement when they run and be a more efficient runner. Unfortunately, the opposite is true. More flexibility is comes at a cost. And I think people poorly misunderstand flexibility because flexibility is specific to how you do it. So what I mean by that is the ability to get into a lunge position and slowly take your legs further and further apart until you're doing a forward splits is very, very different to the flexibility you have in lengthening your stride. One is happening over a long period of time, two, three, four, five, six minutes. One's happening over a period of time of about 0.4 of a second. So flexibility is dependent on how you gain that flexibility. So for example, if you want to sit cross-legged on the ground and meditate, then a good stretch would be to sit cross-legged on the ground and meditate. And meditate. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be a great stretch. It's a dynamic stretch. You're sitting cross-legged. It might be a bit uncomfortable. You push your knees down a bit. You hold that. And gradually over time, that position becomes more and more comfortable. But if you want to have greater hip flexibility when you run, that's not the strategy at all. Because any flexibility you gain has to be controlled by the strength. If you haven't got the strength to control a range of movement, your body won't give that to you. So another way to think about it, if you take someone who's super flexible, like somebody who does yoga, and you watch them, so they just start getting into running, what you'll see when they run is this long, lopy kind of stride, but with no power, no force, no elasticity, there's no strength there at all, they're just kind of collapsing at the joints. Now, that's not to put down yoga, I love yoga, I think it's got some huge benefits, it's just using it as an example that the flexibility you gain doing something like yoga with a lot of static stretching some dynamic, but it's not really running dynamic. It's not fast at all. Doesn't translate into running. 
Now compare that to say a lunge where your knees going forward of your toes and you're landing dynamically. You're getting a dynamic calf stretch every single time you land and your knee goes forward. Now that's obviously far, far more like running. When you land, your foot lands on the ground, your knee goes forward a little bit, your calf and Achilles tendon go under a stretch. It happens over 0.25 of a second, if not quicker. So doing a dynamic, doing a static stretch for your calf that takes 30 seconds in a holding position really isn't going to translate into a 0.25 of a second stretch. Another way to think about it is if you go into a gym and you haven't done gym work for ages and you do a set of push-ups and the next day you wake up and your pecs are just so tight, you can barely stretch back at all. Now, what's the solution to that? Is it A, stretch those pecs until they're not tight anymore or B, do more push-ups? Now, if you answered B, you're correct because if you rested, went back into the gym four days later, did more push-ups, four days later, did it again. After a few weeks, you get to the point where you could do three sets of 20 push-ups and you have no change in or range of movement of your chest whatsoever. In fact, you've probably got more range because you're stronger and can go down deeper into your push-up. So you get that flexibility from strength work. Now, Studies that have looked at flexibility in Olympic athletes found the two most flexible athletes were gymnasts, no surprise there, weightlifters. Now people might think, well, why would weightlifters be very flexible? Well, they've got a ton of weight. They're going into extreme ranges of movement, like the bottom of a squat in a power clean or whatever. You've got extreme knee bend, extreme hip bend. So they're going through these ranges of movement with, with speed and with force. So consequently, they've got great range of movement with the strength to control it. So anytime I hear athletes saying, no, I'm really tight in the cars, I need to stretch more. My first thought is uh, you need to do some strength work through a running specific range of movement. And I think that's commonly missed by a lot of people because we're so caught up on stretching is better. And it's also the, um, it doesn't also quite logically follow that it's okay. So you've done something and your body's response to it was to become tighter. That's a protective mechanism. That means that you've stressed it. You've put it into this range of motion that it wasn't ready. And so now it's tightening to, to protect. So to now go, I'm going to pull it out of this protect that you doesn't know what it's doing. I'm going to do the exact opposite. You know, if you've got a frayed rope, you don't make it, you don't then just pull on either end. You, need to get a stronger rope um and also just think about okay what actual adaptions are you getting by stretching versus strengthening because you ask most people why are you strength why are you stretching and their answer quite a common one i'll get is i'm trying to make the muscle longer you're not making the muscle longer by stretching you are increasing your tolerance to stretch if you're just doing these 30 second stretch calf stretch you're not inducing enough load to put new muscle fascicles in. You're not going to, because um, that, that's hypertrophy. If you're making the muscle longer, you have made the muscle bigger. That requires large loads to induce hypertrophy. Strengthening through a full range of motion would be, a, it actually does that. That's how you actually make the muscle longer by putting it under load in those length in the positions. If you're just, yeah, doing light stretching, all that's doing is increasing the tolerance to stretch. It's a neurological thing that it's sort of, you show your body, look, you can go here, you did a tear and it goes, okay, I didn't tear. 
You can go a little bit, you didn't tear. Okay, good, I can go a little further. And that's why it feels good. Um, it can also be quite transient that, you know, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, done where, you know, you, you pull up a little tight from something, you do a little bit of stretching, go, oh, now that feels better. And then that afternoon, you're like, oh, I'm as tired as I was before I stretched um, because it can be quite transient there as well. So it's thinking about, again, what adaption are you actually trying to induce? Are you trying to just increase your tolerance to stretch? Which, remember, that tightness is often a protective mechanism because it's trying to make sure you don't go outside of that range that you can control. Or do you actually want to make muscle longer? Do you want to increase the strength and the ability to control that greater range of motion, which for a dynamic activity like running, you want to be able to control that greater range of motion. That's really important. Being able to get into that range of motion means nothing if when you get there, you're just going to, oh, I can't slow down now that I've moved into this position and now it's torn. Exactly. And I think some people will look at, for example, the ability of the foot to come up behind you and kick your bum being relative to quad flexibility. And they try and stretch their quads and they can't get the foot to the bum and think, oh, that's, that's a problem. What we find, and I've seen you know, pictures of athletes who cannot get their foot to the bum when they do a static stretch, but when they do an 800 meter, all that effort, they're basically kicking themselves in the butt. And you think, well, how can they not get it there statically, but can get it there dynamically? Well, for that exact reason, like they've got the strength to control it when it's moved under load, but they haven't done static stretching enough to for their brain to go, it's fine. We can tolerate this better. They haven't done that. They've got their flexibility from fast running or strength running, not from grabbing their foot and bringing it up to their bum. So I think if you're thinking you need to be more flexible, then what you're thinking is you need to get a strength training program that takes you through a good range of movement rather than do more stretching. And that's from an injury prevention point of view, that's going to be far, far more beneficial than doing a lot of stretching. And again, it doesn't mean there's never any role for stretching whatsoever. As I said, there it can definitely feel good. There are times where you do want that temporary increased range in motion and you need to then be aware of what you've done that ultimately long-term, you need to be strengthening it so that it got tight for a reason. You want to address that reason. Um, yeah, certainly can be a role there. And it's a great, you know, it's great. A lot of runners... So things like yoga and that, which we mentioned, it can be fantastic for people just to unwind that, you know, uh, I think meditation is really hard just to sit down and, you know, chill. A lot of people yoga struggle. gives you something to do, but you chill. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I think we pretty much covered strength or anything else you think we've forgotten. No, I think just the big thing, because I know in one sense, you know, we've touched on some things that are, go against what is often put out in the running literature, as we said, where we've sort of pushed for, you know, high repetition ranges over really heavy strength training, which often gets put forward as the quote unquote evidence-based way to train runners. And I think it's just important to hammer home the point that it's because that evidence is often really targeted towards five 10K runners. I've seen, for instance, specific studies where they can will compare heavy, explosive and muscular endurance training. And the conclusion of the study was that, you know, the heavy strength training was best because the metrics they use, you go in and now actually look at, okay, which metrics got improved and, you know, what, what we, you know, it's usually running economy that they really focus on. But then you go look at, for instance, at the start, I mentioned that the run to exhaustion, the velocity run to exhaustion correlates a lot better than running economy with um, ultramarathon performance. And you go, well, actually for that one, 
the muscular endurance training actually outperforms. So interpreting it through a new lens of through the lens of for ultra marathon runners, the muscular endurance training was better. And so just reading the abstract won't get you there. You need to really come, come in with that ultra marathon specific lens, because that's probably not the lens that the study was done in. Definitely. read through it all in detail and then actually come to your own conclusion, which may be different to the authors because that's not the lens from which they were writing it. And these days also not a lot of studies even, it's kind of a shame that because um, the muscular, you know, a lot of early studies show, oh, these heavy training better for running economy. That's what then gets focused on. And then the, the muscular endurance training doesn't actually get touched on in as many studies. So again, and again, also it's remembering even with the running economy, you're looking at this two to eight percent sort of benefit. I think, yeah, eight's about the most I've ever seen in a study. And you still get some running often, if you're doing it over a long enough period, get some running economy benefit um, from the muscular endurance training as well. In fact, the one study I've seen with actual trail elite trail runners, like national representatives, that's what they were doing. It was all body weight um, exercises, no added weight whatsoever. And they improved the cost of running in these elite trail runners doing nothing but body weight exercises and exactly those sort of dynamic exercises. Unfortunately, it didn't then look at actual trail running performance. But even then, the running economy put as the gold standard of the um, the advocates for the heavy strength training can still be improved using everything that we have yeah. mentioned. Maybe, and again, maybe you are missing out on one or two percent in running economy, which may or may not have any correlation to your ultra marathon performance. Yeah, exactly. Now, if you've listened to all this and you're thinking, yeah, it sounds really good, I should really pull my finger out and get into some strength training, then uh, we've got a mile 27's got a 10 workout package of strength training. You can sign that to that on the website mile27.com.au so it just takes you through 10 workouts each workout builds on the previous workout so it gets progressively harder as you go progressively more dynamic and multi-planar don't need any equipment at all so you can do it at home so if you are interested in getting some strength training that is there for you um, ben and i also offer strength training as part of our run coaching program so if you want some more personalized strength training we offer it via our coaching services Thank you very much for today, Ben. It's been fun as always. And we look forward to having Simon back on the next podcast. Until then, happy running. Have fun, guys.